Hey, Dangerously Likely fans. Today at 5 p.m. Mountain Time, we are releasing a new show called Civics Failed. Civics Failed will be centered on highlighting activism and advocacy that is aimed at improving the systems and institutions that make up our society. You will find Civics Failed in the same place you normally listen to Dangerously Likely. Also, today is Trans Day of Visibility, and we are celebrating with not one, but two interviews, one in this episode and one in our Civics Failed episode coming out later today. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to celebrate Trans Day of Visibility. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Okay, so who's ready for spring? Mm. I'm a fall boy. Very, I am too. <laughs> Torrance, are you excited for spring? I mean, I like the spring and the fall, not the summer. It's too hot. That's a good answer. Good I, answer. I like that. You know, I, I I agree with that. So you know, all I you mean, need is a light jacket. <laughs> okay. And well, this when I walk off the stage. As you know, as you both know, it's starting to get warmer outside. It's starting to feel a little less like winter. I know for me, I've been able to enjoy the outdoors in a t-shirt and shorts as recent as this past weekend. However, with spring comes pollen, and with pollen comes allergies. And if you think allergy season has been getting worse and worse, you would be correct. I feel attacked. <laughs> Research has shown that over the past 30 years, the pollen season has lengthened by about 20 days and pollen concentrations have increased by 21%. And the culprit, why it's climate change, of course, which <laughs> actually just means we're the culprit. Rising global temperatures and increased carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere caused the growing season to begin earlier and last longer, which makes trees and plants produce more pollen. So yes, climate change affects us all, whether it's increased allergy seasons or supercharged heat waves. And by the end of the century, it'll be unbelievably worse. And that's why we need to do something about it. As Bosco says, chew. Shut the fuck up. It's a RuPaul I have reference. no idea. What it was a RuPaul <laughs> reference. But I mean, like, this is a serious thing, right? Like, as someone who has really bad allergies, um, there was a time and place where you could say like, oh yeah, it's just allergies and hearing from you, Caleb, that that time frame has lengthened. It does become some of those concerns, especially when you go to work and in workplaces following as we're in the midst of a pandemic where you can't stop sneezing multiple times and people are looking at you a certain kind of way. Um, it, it, I, that is big and major news that We'll probably not get a lot of uh, mainstream access, but something that I'm glad that we can talk about here. In messages to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the weeks after Election Day, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas called Biden's victory the, quote, quote, the greatest heist of our history and told him that President Donald Trump should not concede. Virginia Thomas, who goes by Ginny, a Republican activist and strategist, repeatedly pressed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to pursue unrelenting efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in a series of urgent text exchanges in the critical weeks after the vote, according to copies of the messages obtained by the Washington Post and CBS News. The messages, 29 in all, revealed an extraordinary pipeline between Virginia Thomas and President Donald Trump's top aide during a period 
when Trump and his allies were vowing to go to the Supreme Court in an effort to negate the election's results. On November 10th, after news organizations had projected Joe Biden the winner based on state vote totals, Thomas wrote to Meadows, quote, help, help this great president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history, end quote. In other text exchanges, Thomas alludes to having spoken to her, quote, best friend, a name she and Justice Thomas have publicly referred to one another as, calling into question Justice Thomas's impartiality. News of the communication between Virginia Thomas and President Trump's then chief of staff has resulted in calls for Justice Thomas's recusal from, from cases related to January 6th, including calls from Senators Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker. Um, I do believe, gentlemen, that this is just the beginning of, I think, how this is going to play. I know that the January 6th Select Committee has already um, issued, I don't want to say, I don't want to call an invitation um, for Virginia, Virginia Thomas to come and testify in front of the committee regarding these text exchanges. Um, I know that this is in conjunction with the January 6th Committee finding a pretty wide gap in communication and records um, for the president on that day. And I also think in, con in conjunction with this, it's really important to understand, and it's really notable that Justice Thomas was the singular vote out of all justices on the Supreme Court to vote against forcing the Trump administration to overturn all of its documents to the January 6th Select Committee. So I think that with the, re re with the revelation of these text messages and the very interesting singular vote of Clarence Thomas um, against having these records turned over does speak to potentially, I think, a conflict of interest um, and of course, you can't you can't prove any of this, but there are plenty of um, no. I mean, what I'm about to say, you can't prove whether or not best, the best friend is is Justice Thomas. But I think that there's a ton of evidence um, showing that that is something they have commonly referred to it one another as in public. Um, so I think that we're just seeing how this is going to unfold. But I definitely think it's interesting and, and calls into question some of the impartiality of, of Justice Thomas. And I think that it's notable also that he had he was um, ill over this time as well. So do, do you gentlemen have any thoughts? Um, anything you guys like to add to the story? Yeah, I, I just want to add that um, I want to say it was a reporter for the Washington Post, but I don't want to be held firm to that. Highlighted that um, Justice Thomas ruled in Gore v. Bush. And one text message that's very notable um, that I've seen come out of this information dump, if you will, was Thomas's his wife overt calls for the protection of conservatism and saying how if Trump doesn't win, who are the conservatives anymore? And the reason I think the Bush-Gore conversation matters, if our listeners recall, when we had a robust conversation about the electorate and the Electoral College, I highlighted that that was a situation where the Supreme Court failed. The Supreme Court had no role stepping in and telling the state whether or not it should count its ballots. Um, and when you see, even though many of us were already aware, the lack of impartiality of Justice Thomas, you really do call it a question, how different could the world have been had this justice, who is very clearly biased by his ideology, um, be? And you get to see the impact, because I do think there'll be some talking points moving forward of, well... Here's why Justice Thomas doesn't need to recuse himself. It doesn't have that much of an impact, blah, 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 blah. But it is important to recognize that we've seen ramifications of when the Supreme Court becomes overtly partisan. 
And to ignore that and to not think that where Justice Thomas is now in that specific moment is to be ignorant of the facts that are being presented before you today. I think this is a this is a huge deal. Like I don't know if I've ever um, seen a story quite like this in my lifetime about a Supreme Court justice. Um, I mean, there's so much to unpack and like, I don't want to do the if true kind of speculative bullshit here, but like a lot of this points towards at the very least, Justice Thomas needing to recuse himself from anything that comes to Supreme Court about what happened on January 6th. I, I agree. But the, the, something that was highlighted during the, um, Katanji Brown Jackson hearings is that, you know, the Supreme Court is the only court and they're the only, you know, justices or judges in the entire um, country who are not held to a code of ethics. Mm -hmm. So there's actually nothing to force Justice Thomas into recusal other than the pressure of his colleagues and peers on the court. And there's no way to remove him other than if his colleagues also believe that that is that that is necessary that's not um, completely accurate either because congress could impeach him like that's not gonna happen you could beat the avenues but you it could would... beat the drum and like really it, i mean i made this comment when uh, uh what's his face the other justice was appointed i can't think of his name right kavanaugh. now because right. kavanaugh, you, kavanaugh, or kavanaugh. Yeah. kavanaugh i just it blocked him out of my mind but uh, I do think that there is that call for accountability, right? Like we are having that conversation around the former president, Donald Trump, and especially with uh, other court records coming out and saying there's a high likelihood that he committed felonies. There is this belief of accountability. And I'm not disagreeing with you all that it's very unlikely, but by setting that precedent and, and setting that standard of, well, we're not going to cross that bridge. So it has to be his colleagues that have already shown they do not have the the calling to push a justice out um that drum might need to be beat by our congress by our people to to show that pressure of what could account what could accountability look like in a democracy that challenges um an individual that is threatening an institution and i would i would go as far to argue that that is something that justice thomas is doing i and i'm saying that not to be devil's advocate or to cause a, a stir, but really truly because there are other avenues and we as a people are pretending like that avenue is just blocked off forever. Yeah. Principally, I think, yeah, no, you're right. There are, there are two means of doing so. Um, I didn't, you know, I was focusing on the, on the colleagues because I think that it, the the hearing we just lived through last week is evidence that there's no appetite for some sort of congressional, um, impeachment of a Supreme Court justice, especially given what is required, the amount of votes required to do so. Um, I think that to your point, the reason I was being fo focusing on the, his colleagues and his peers is because if anyone has a vested interest, and I think the the institution of the Supreme Court, it would be his peers who see it, see his behavior as something that could negate that um, institution's integrity. And so, yeah. One last thing to kind of add to that, and it might be an unpopular opinion, but it, before like we get to impeachment or any of that, it just, it, at least I feel like this might be the mood in Washington, but it feels like maybe we should have some more information first. 
about exactly what all these text messages say, what the January 6th committee comes with. Um, and if Clarence Thomas had what, what his role might've been. I mean, I think there's a lot of assumptions we can make based off what we've seen, but I feel like we need a little bit more before we can beat any of those drums. I think that's fair. But let's check out the international folk. Promising news out of Kiev this Tuesday. Um, Russia announced a scale back in military operations near the Ukraine, near Ukraine's capital. This comes as peace talks are taking place in Istanbul and are showing signs and glimpses of compromise to potentially end this conflict. Ukraine has proposed adopting a neutral status in exchange for guarantees from Moscow that there would be um, security and and protection of some sort. What this would mean is that the country would not host bases or join any military alliances such as NATO or the EU. This news also comes as U.S. diplomats are continuing to sound alarms of military movements by Russia with the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, going as far as to suggest that this pullback could be an attempt to, quote-unquote, deceive people and deflect attention, while Moscow forces begin to focus more on the um, Donbass region. As the story continues to develop, we at Dangerous Likely will continue to bring updates and provide information um, I know last time we discussed this topic, it was really kind of what happens next. But I do want to ask Caleb Torrance, are there any thoughts? Are there any opinions with some promising news coming out of the region? I don't trust Russia. I mean, look, they they quite literally opened up several humanitarian corridors for humanitarian aid to get to people who needed it. And then almost immediately shut those down and bombed people using those corridors. Mm-hmm. They, like, yeah, it's like they they have yet to ever honor any of these ceasefires for the sake of humanitarian relief. Exactly. So this doesn't really inspire confidence in me. Um, I think if there's, there's a few things here, and I'll hit on one of them, I think that it has been becoming, I, I want to say shockingly, maybe it's not anymore after a month of war, but I think it's becoming shockingly clear that the Russian military is not as scary as everybody thought it was. They haven't taken over almost any major cities mm-hmm. in Ukraine. I mean, and that that obviously is a lot of props to the Ukrainian military and citizens who have gathered arms to fight off an invading country. Um, but I, it, I don't think, even if Russia succeeds eventually, I don't think Russia wins in any scenario here. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say this, and I think that it's really important, and I want to give credit to the person who who kind of provoked this thought in me, Nicole Wallace. She's the host of Deadline White House and MSNBC and the former communications director for the Bush White House, um, W. Bush, excuse me, to be specific. And she questioned that this idea of them scaling back, right, readjust, readjusting their goal to just the Donbass region, Um that accepting that as some sort of positive thing, doesn't that sort of just fly in the face of everything that we've said thus far, which is, oh, like instead of like, okay, I want to come in here and dominate your whole country, we'll just settle for a little bit of it. Like as if invading a sovereign nation is any trying to take any part of it is okay, period, right? Like it doesn't care if you want 20% or 100%, you have invaded a sovereign nation and you ha- and their territorial integrity has been violated. 
like you know i mean like th- that that is the problem period like 10 feet 10 acres or the entire thing and i think that that is a really important point for us to keep in front of us because if we say okay oh my god thank you you'll just take the donbass region what kind of what have we said right that if that, that if you overshoot we'll accept less so you you if you if you try to go for the entire Nordic region, and you only end up taking one, we'll be like, oh, okay, thank you for only taking one of the four. Like, it's just not, it's not the right posture, I think, to take when we're in this um, discussion. And I think that's important for us to understand that, like, there has been nothing justified about his actions thus far, and to, to, to paint any of their decisions to, to pull back as positive is, I think, negates the entire you know conversation here in a way that i don't think is productive or um what we intend to communicate to russia and then to the point that we made originally i don't trust vladimir putin period i don't trust him there's no evidence to to show that i should Hmm. staying on the international fold afghan women face repressive measures as the taliban government restricts girls from going to school beyond the sixth grade women are being barred from boarding planes if they are traveling unaccompanied by male relatives. Men and women can only visit public parks on separate days and use mobile telephones in universities um, are also use of those telephones are also being prohibited. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also laid out a $7.3 billion spending package to cut planet warming emissions Um, by 2030, which is Canada's target date. And we'll be right back. And we're back. A record number of anti-transgender bills were filed in 2021, largely focused on denying transgender youth the ability to receive gender-affirming care and participate in school athletic programs. Even more anti-transgender legislation is on track to be filed in 2022. There are more than 320 anti-LGBTQ bills under consideration in state legislatures across the country. Of those, at least 130 directly target transgender people, and approximately half of those 70-plus bills would ban trans youth from participating in school sports consistent with their gender identity. Um, I know that a lot of us, if we, you know, keeping up with the news, that there is a lot of um, anti-LGBTQ plus and anti-trans bills that are that are commonly being discussed um, in, in in the news right now. Specifically, obviously, the passage of the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, which Governor DeSantis just signed this week into law, um, and then most notably, I would say also the two the two bills that were going through the Indiana State House um, that were on the topic of. Uh, banning transgender youth from participating in sports um, that that were in line with their gender identity, as well as the the bill in Utah, um, which did the same. Um, Both Republican governors of each state, Indiana and Utah, both vetoed those bills. Um, However, um, in Utah, the state state legislature overruled his veto and passed the bill anyway. Um, I wanted to, to, in that light, not to put, you know, and I want to be very clear about this, not to put um, transgender I mean, not, excuse me, not to put Republican governors in, in this really positive light, but I do think that it's important um, for us to highlight the reasons why they vetoed these bills, because they speak to they speak to the issue of these bills in general. Um, the, the, the Utah governor, uh, Spencer Cox, who is a Republican, in vetoing his bill, sent a letter to his uh the president of the Senate, as well as the Speaker of the State House, saying, uh, quote, one of the things was rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. I don't, don't understand 
why what they are going through or what they feel why they feel the way they do but i want them to live um he, he said so in citations of the statistics around transgender youth who either commit suicide think about committing suicide or commit self-harm um and that that ultimately when the research uh you know and statistic laid out that there were only four um transgender children in the entire state who are participating in uh, who were looking to participate in sports and only one of those was participating in on a team that that differed from their 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 sex assigned at birth um in the indiana bill in which governor holcomb um wrote a letter to his indiana state lawmakers on monday saying that quote after thorough review he found quote no evidence that the problem his state's bill sought to fix even existed he said, quote, amidst the flurry of enthusiasm to protect the integrity and fairness of women's sports in our state, a worthy cause for sure, this bill leaves too many unanswered questions, end quote, he wrote. Um, I think that it is unfortunate that it is likely that this Indiana bill will also be overruled um, by the state legislature and be passed ultimately. But I think that it's important for these um, state executives, these governors who, all, although are Republicans, are pointing out, I think, the issue with with spending time on this stuff, right? These culture wars that are consuming our country, and in and in the process, really maligning and putting the the the, the lives and well being of young children at risk in doing so. Um, Indiana is I live in Michigan. Indiana is a state that has a lot of issues that could be addressed. And I think it's really, really telling that their own governor said that this is a bill that is trying to fix a problem that doesn't even exist in their state when they could be spending their time on legislation that is actually going to improve the lives of Hoosiers in Indiana. Um, but in light of all of that negative um, news around uh, our transgender community, in light of the Transgender Day of Visibility, which is which is today, the day that this episode is coming out, um, we want to give our platform um, to the transgender community. We think that that is, is really important that we're not just here to talk about things, but that we're giving space and creating space for people um, to, to, to get their story out there, their experience out there, and, and to speak to their own experience in a way that we could never do. Um, transgender Day of Visibility is March 31st. And I, I as, a, as a Michigander, I take great pride that this was something that was started by a Michigander, um, a transgender woman by the name of Rachel Crandall Crocker, who created the International Transgender Day of Visibility um, as a as, as a way to offer hope and happiness to the trans community who had prior only had, um, yes, a part of, of, of gay pride as well, which is in inclusive of the entire um, community, but also they only had Transgender Day of Remembrance in November, which was more focused on some of the sadness and, and the loss of the community. Um, I wanted to share the specific story for those who don't know, because I think the education is so important that when Rachel Crandall Crocker uh, came up with Transgender Day of Visibility in 2000, 2009, um, the only annual event that the most transgender communities had was nothing to celebrate. And it was in reference to the 1998 um, killing of Rita Hester, a black transgender woman in Boston, Massachusetts, who was brutally stabbed in her own apartment. Um, transgender women were tired of being targets and done being dismissed by the press, which misgendered Hester um, at the time of her death. They marched through Hester's Boston neighborhood and Transgender Day of Remembrance was born. So in an effort to give the trans community something that was based in hope and happiness, Rachel Crander Crocker um, came up with the International Trans Day of Visibility on March 31st. So in light of that happiness um, and, and, and an opportunity to talk about the positive things in this community and the identity of the, of the beautiful people who exist in the trans community, um, I would like to... Uh, pass this over to, to a good friend of mine, Gra Gabrielle Kunzman. She's a colleague and a friend who I interviewed this week, and, and she is a transgender woman. So I hope that you enjoy our interview.
Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, today, we have a really special treat for you. Um, as you guys know, we are celebrating the Trans Day of Visibility here on Dangerously Likely, um, and I could not be happier or more excited to introduce you to, to my friend and colleague, uh, Gabrielle Kunzman. Um, Gabby, thank you for joining us today. Hi there. Yeah, um, no, it's really fun. I've never been on a podcast before. Well, this is exciting, and, I, and I'm happy that we could be um, be your first. Uh, so, as you know, um, we're doing an episode around Trans Day of Visibility, and it, we feel that dangerously likely it's very important for us um, to, to walk the walk on this and to create space for our trans brothers and sisters. Um, I'm not sure if you are fully aware. Obviously, you know I'm gay. One of my other co-hosts is um, is bisexual, and another is straight. So we've got uh, we've got the diversity as far as the LGBTQ plus uh, community goes on our podcast host panel. Um, but we're just really excited to have you here today, and we want to make sure that we give you the space to share your story and share your experience, because that's what uh, Trans Day of Visibility is all about. Yeah, um, I'm happy to be here, um, and I did not know that about your co-host, so it's nice that you two, or the three of you, uh, complete the triangle of male <laughs> sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, as again, maybe not all encompassing or, or all, all uh, comprehensive, but yeah, a nice little triangle, as you put it. Um, so, so to, to kick this off, uh, can you t tell me who you are? What does transgender visibility mean to you? Yeah, uh, so my name is Gabby. I am a trans 30 something woman who lives in northern Indiana, uh, and uh, I'm a professional. I just have a job. I work every day. I'm a normal person. I like games. Um, but trans visibility to me means trying to get out there and have the basic conversations with as many people as possible and to really just get the message out there that like, hey, I'm just a human being. Um, I'm not the monster under the bed. I'm not oogie boogie. I uh, and really just trying to educate people and make life easier for the people that come after me. Um, I think that was obviously beautifully put, um, mostly because it is very simple, right? I, I just recently said something about this as far as um, the entire LGBTQ plus community goes. Um, at Notre Dame, as you know, I, I am on the steering committee for our LGBTQ plus employee resource group and recently did an interview. And one of the things that I said in the interview was like, we want to have visibility and representation because it's very easy to make a boogeyman or a boogie woman out of something that you don't know or understand, right? Like that you don't it's very easy to to otherize something that you don't understand or you've never you've never encountered or you have no exposure to right and so for me as far as any visibility goes as you as you said it's about just showing that we're all just human we're just people we're just living our lives and we just want to you know live in a world that accepts us and is that a safe for us right yeah. Now, to put a little qualifier on your question, the thing I don't want to do is have to go into the hows, the whys, the whens, the whats. I oh, just yeah, want people yeah. to know that it is. Exactly. That I exist. Yeah. Um, there, there, there is no, like, I, I very much don't like having the conversations of justifying myself with people um, because I feel like nobody should have to justify themselves to another human being. Absolutely. Not. Especially your existence, right? The, the fact that you exist is not something that is up for debate or for question. You are. And that is Absolutely. all that is. But I, I do feel there's a difference in between somebody who argues with my existence and I have to somehow prove it to them or somebody who just literally has never met a trans person um, or somebody with trans kids who you're the first trans adult they've met. Um, right, you know, yeah. sometimes it's stuff like that. It's, it's, um, or just somebody who's questioning, meeting somebody who's further along on the path. That's what trans visibility is. Like, it's not about knocking on doors and converting minds. It's about speaking <laughs> to the people who want to speak to us. Absolutely. Um, well, and to, to that 
you know point that you were making about um people who have trans children and maybe be you being like the first trans adult that they've ever met when did you know you were transgender so that's a that's a hard one for me to answer um i know people who were like yeah age four i looked down i knew i was a woman <laughs> um for me i was very much confused for most of my childhood i knew i was an other um, both me and the boys around me knew I was a fruitcake or a fag. Uh, they knew before I did. And then I very much knew, um, the, the hard thing for me was the first places I saw myself represented were in pornography in Hollywood. Uh, and in Hollywood, it was serial killers and Ace Ventura movies where trans people just got mocked, made fun of. Um, and so I, I knew I was trans at that point. But then it was the struggle of making the decision to go down that path when the world around me was so unaccepting and hostile and the options were limited. I so to I actually like think this is a really great opportunity for me to, to pose a kind of a different question about that is that I know that we talked about like to this point about how important it is to see yourself represented in the world um in in all areas right especially as a kid and you're you're telling you know you're revealing that one of the first places you've seen yourself represented in any medium was either in uh hollywood movies not portrayed in a positive light and then often created as the the villain or the other or the dangerous thing right in society or in pornography and so we see all of these in you know don't say gay anti-trans bills sweeping the nation that are only i think committing another generation uh, to that to that experience right where you don't see any positive represent representations of who you are and therefore how like the the negative impact that has on you can you Absolutely. tell me like how you think those poor or the, i don't want to say poor those those negative representations of trans people how that impacted your self-identity and your decision to come out at any point later in your life well, I think that the negative representations of trans people isn't the problem. It's the lack of positive representations. And that's what the Don't Say Gay Bill does. Beautiful. The Don't Thank Say Gay Bill puts down queer people. It puts down gay people. And so that we can't have a positive conversation in a safe place like a school where you can have adults managing the conversation, where you can bring in elders, you can bring in adult queer people who have lived experiences, um, you know, and there can be positive examples for kids to follow. Instead, you try to hide all that away because that's what your agenda is. And that is what you don't want to happen in the world. And when you hide all that away, it doesn't work in the modern age. My generation was the first generation to have the Library of Alexandria at our fingertips. The same blessing I have with computer skills that has helped me in my professional career is also a curse to my emotional health over my childhood. Um, the kids of today have the Library of Alexandria in their pocket. And so you're realistically telling me you're going to keep gay out of their head if they're thinking gay? No. If they're gay, they're gay. If they're trans, they're trans. They will find information. It's about kind of helping the kids find the right information, as opposed to landing on a porn site as the first place they see themselves represented. Maybe it gets talked about in school. Radical idea. <laughs> Right, because what what you're saying and what I wholeheartedly understand and believe myself, because as a gay kid, I knew very early on before anyone else, before I had words for it, right? I understood that about myself, yeah. or this difference about myself that like you didn't trans, gay people, bisexual people, lesbian, like we exist, we are here, we're not going anywhere. We, a lot of us, probably, I mean, I would not, I bet you close to the majority of us knew 
pre like pre puberty like the, mm-hmm. the in adolescence there was even if it wasn't that we had the language for it we understood that there was something different than us not normal and that for whatever reason it was either ourself our gender identity or sexual orientation that we weren't having the same experiences as our cisgendered you know heterosexual peers who were were having these 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 thoughts and so um Specifically, and this, is, this, this is also where you'd get even past possible futures and pe- people seeing a path for themselves. This is also where you start to get into the suicide conversation. Um, I'm going to get a little vulnerable for a second. Pre-puberty, yeah. To your point, I knew something was off. I was a kid. I, I was probably eating dirt or something. Like, let's be honest. I, I was good in school and that was about it. I played a lot of video games. When I started hitting puberty, I started getting really dark and disassociating with myself i wasn't really anything i was more like a an unhappy blob um and it's because i had no way to talk about the things i was thinking about i had no way of like connecting or finding representation of myself a positive example of myself and so i kept all that shoved down um you can't keep stuff like that shoved down uh, and that's why it's statistically been proven that the odds of a kid c- trying to commit suicide, a trans kid trying to commit suicide, drop drastically if their family supports them and just uses the right name. Doesn't even have to be about pills or bathrooms. Sometimes it's just about the name and the family. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being vulnerable. And and the the point that I, like I know that you're making and I can hear is that like this doesn't just when when trans people and LGBTQ plus people aren't accepted it doesn't just affect our identity sexually or or about our gender it, it affects our identity as a whole person it affects how we see ourselves um, as worthy and 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 of value in the world outside of any of those those other things right um, as just a kid as just a person as just a human um, and it leaves a permanent scar on our self perception. No matter how long we work on building up our confidence and getting past the things that we've gone through, in the back of your head, there's still that ringing. Ugh, fruitcake, you're a weirdo. Right. And like, like yeah, yeah. I know that, that I don't self talk. Yeah. Yeah. That negative self talk. I know I don't feel that way about myself. I'm awesome. I'm beautiful. Yeah. I'm cool. But it still pops in there every once in a while. And I mean, honestly, I'm not surprised it happened for long enough that it's <laughs> second nature. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, I, um, I relate to that like so much, and I think that mine, I think maybe fortunately manifested otherwise, like less in this self like loathing, and which like not that there weren't points where that was the case, because there certainly was, because you know you you think that you, when you think that you're wrong, you're like, well, I need to fix that, right? Like you think there's something to be fixed about you. Um, so I do remember like of course having that self loathing, but more so, for me, it, it manifested in this, um, in trying to like i remember making a conscious decision as a as a as a preteen that like if i okay if i'm smart and if i'm good in school and if i do good in sports and i do good in like you know my social organizations and i do good in class leadership then i then no one will care that i'm gay right like if i if i succeed and exceed at all these other things then they can't possibly have a negative opinion about me because i'm gay right like trying to trying to over overpower you know the influence of yeah. that specific factor about about me because it's not who i am it's 
just if I'm amazing enough, if I'm smart right, enough, if right. I work hard enough, if I'm a good enough employee, it won't yeah. matter that I'm trans yeah. or gay. And at the end of the day, it always matters. Which like might have some positive like outcome, right? Like succeeding at these things because of that motivation. But at the end of the day, what is that telling, you know, a young person about what they have to do to be of value, to be cared about, to be loved, it, right? Frankly, if you if you ask me at this phase of my life, it sounds exhausting. No. <laughs> I want to take a nap. I'm sick of working. (laughs) Yeah, no, I can can certainly say it is exhausting. Um, uh, So, like, I want to, you know, want to wrap up the interview with a a final question. And something that I think is so interesting, because you said at the beginning about how, you know, trans people are just people. And they just want to, you know, be able to live their life. Um, like everyone else, um, and I hope you don't care if you know if I if I share this this piece of information about you. But like you know, you also were a member of the U.S. military and served our country, uh, you know, valiantly. And you know, I think that like that's another point that's just like we are just you're just people who who are trying to exist in the world, doing honorable things, doing great work, um, worthy of love and 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 safety and care. And so, um, what is it that you would like people to know about trans people? Um. I like people to know that we've always been here and that we're just people. We've been here since the hills of Rome. We've been here since the conquistadors murdered the natives. We've been here on every continent. Um, It's not a question of if we are. Um, And yeah, you are more than welcome to bring up my military experience. My past is my past. And I was a former Imperial stormtrooper for the United (laughs) States military. Um, I would like to make a comment on that. Um, yeah, cause yeah, of course. One of the questions that we didn't cover was uh, w- um, what affected when I came out and when I uh, moved on with my life. Um, something that some people have studied uh, is the hypermasculinization of trans people when they turn away from their transness, which is something that I delved in. If I can't be what I feel I am and you want me to be a man i'm gonna be the manliest man there is people stop picking on you when you become the toughest guy in the room and so uh, i went down that road for many years and it's a very very negative road because it's laden with just as many traps for depression anxiety ptsd attempted suicide uh but also it kind of ties into why they don't want us to transition when we transition, we're happy, we're loving. We go out there and we spread that joy in the world. When we don't transition, we fall in line, we get angry, we contribute to the hatred in the system from time to time. Um, and the system loves that type of stuff. Uh, and so the system is built this way. When, when you ask why people don't transition, it's because the system doesn't want us to transition. We're more useful the other way. <laughs> Wow, that that's actually something that I had not um, heard uh, before, and I think that that's really powerful. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, it's not it's not at all what I was like what I thought would come out of um, mentioning your your service. Just something that I know um, about you as a friend and as as a colleague. And so, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. I, I just want to thank you so much for being here and and for sharing your story and sharing and being vulnerable and open um, because we really think that this is an opportunity for people who listen to our show to be um, to hear the story of someone who's trans, who may have never met someone who's trans, never had any experience or exposure. Um, and, and like we said at the beginning, it's it's so easy to to otherize something that you don't understand or someone that you've never met. And I think that this is, you know, 
it's not the whole game, but it's a step uh, towards building more, I think, love and acceptance in our society. Um, and sometimes I hate, you know, having to feel like we have to do the work to be accepted and loved in society. I absolutely hate that. What sometimes and, feels like a responsibility, but, um, but. But also trying not to look at it as work. Look at it as making friends. We're building community. All we're doing is reaching out our hand and starting conversations. Uh, and uh, I, I wish I could attribute the quote, but uh, ultimately the, the biggest weakness of the bigots and the people who preach for separation is contact, interaction with your fellow human beings. Once, a, once somebody is in front of you, it's a whole lot harder to not believe their story. Um, and so like, yeah, it is hard work constantly putting yourself out there. Um, I personally don't like doing these things, but I think the recording is easier than doing it live because I am in a much better headspace right now in the recording yeah. environment than I have been in live environments before. So I definitely don't like doing it live, but I also recognize that I've met one person at least every time I've done one of these things. And that's what it is, is it's connecting with people, giving other people somebody to reach out to if slash when they need it well i will uh leave you with those words because i think that that is ultimately at the end of the day what we hope to do here at dangerously likely especially with this endeavor is um to try to just build community and bring people in so gabby thank you so much for being here with me today thank you so much for sharing your story um and of course uh thank you for being a friend uh i really appreciate it thank you torrance thank you for being a friend and thanks for having me of course We'll be right back. And we're back. So instead of going on tangents today, we really wanted to have uh, Gabrielle have the last word um, on our episode on Trans Day of Visibility. And uh, don't forget... Um, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, we have a new kind of segment slash show coming out called Civics Failed. It comes out later today um, that you can enjoy. In that first episode, we have more conversation about Trans National Day of Visibility uh, with Terrell and one of our friends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. My name's Terrell. I'm Caleb. And I'm Torrance. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.